I'm sitting across from Zoe Rosenberg. And I'm with Asad Serket. And you're listening to The Appeal, the Curved Podcast. In 2007, documentary filmmaker Gary Hustwit changed the game with his film, Helvetica. That's right. It was a sensation on college campuses everywhere, at least mine. <laughs> and mine too. It made us think about the way that type surrounds us every day, because when you start looking at it, Helvetica is everywhere. It is, in fact, ubiquitous. Yeah, not only that, he followed it up with two documentaries, Objectified and Urbanized. And we're going to be talking to him about those three films and everything he's working on these days, which is a hell of a lot. A hell of a lot. Also including his upcoming documentary, Rams, about industrial designer Dieter Rams. So stick around. Thank you so much for coming in. We're super honored to have you joining us today. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, Um, glad it worked out. So we like to start every interview with kind of a basic... 101 question. At a cocktail party, how do you describe what you do? I usually say filmmaker. I think that's the easiest one. And that's probably what I do the most of, even Mm. though, um, you know, I really love uh, still photography and I'm involved in a lot of other different projects, um, guitar building and other things too. But filmmaking is pretty much my full-time job still. So that's the easy uh, cocktail party answer. Oh, good. Guitar making, I think that's another conversation. Yeah. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. Um, But we do know here that you are uh, involved in not only documentary filmmaking, but you've written books as well. Um, And the subject of one of your books is very apt for conversation right now, and that's Olympic architecture. Mm, Um, And it's something we're interested. We don't want it to overwhelm the conversation, but we want to know a little bit about your thoughts there, specifically because the Olympics just wrapped up. Sure, sure, sure. Well, that project is um, something I, that I do with uh, John Pack, who's another photographer. And we've been doing it now for almost eight years, uh, ever since uh, the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Mm-hmm. So much attention that uh, Games was paid on all the money that they'd spent and the bird's nest and all the kind of things they'd built. And John originally was just kind of wondering, well, what happens to all this stuff you know, after the Games are over? So he started looking um, at cities that were close to New York, like um, Montreal and Lake Placid, Mm -hmm. just kind of scouting around and trying to um, kind of see if there was a real project there and kind of see what, you know, what was the afterlife of these these venues and the Olympic villages and all the development that had been built. So I saw some of the early photographs that he took in 2009 and 2010, and I was just blown away by them. And I I pushed him into letting me collaborate on the project too, because it's it's so um, you know there are over forty cities that have hosted the games and it's a lot of ground to cover. And I thought um, I could I could get involved. So I mean, we're just basically looking at how the Olympics impacted these cities and and what's left from the games after they're gone and how uh, did the games affect the the people who who live there. Um, and did the city kind of kind of organically mesh with these structures afterwards? Uh, so it's kind of a very um, it's a very fun project. It's a very kind of narrow lens to look at a city, 
But um, I think there's so much around the Olympics in terms of obviously the sports and the just kind of amazing performances that happen, but also kind of a city and a country's identity sort of gets mixed up in it. They always try to kind of express who they wish they were uh, mm -hmm. to the rest of the world because they're sort of the center of attention for those two weeks. So that can either be, a, I think, a good thing or a bad thing for mm -hmm. a city yeah. and the people who live there. <laughs> we're seeing on... both sides of that coin at Rio this year in a lot of yeah. ways. Well, it's, it's interesting because so much attention gets paid on the stadiums and these kind of white elephants and the venues, but less attention is paid to the infrastructure and the kind of improvements that you maybe don't notice that that actually do impact the lives of the people who live there. So in Rio, you know, they've been wanting to redevelop the port area for for decades. And I remember when I was there in 2000, um, gosh, I'm sorry, now I'm blanking on when I when I was in, in Rio last. Anyway, I was talking with um, the the mayor, Eduardo Paez, who's in my, was my film in my film Urbanized. And he he was already talking about that redevelop, redeveloping of the port. Mm -hmm. um, that was a, a pet project of his and of previous administrations. So a lot of times the Olympics kind of give cities the the resources and the kind of reason to sort of push through plans that they'd you know been in been in the works for decades. Yeah, um, Barcelona is another case of that. I mean, if you look at somewhere like Munich, the whole subway system in Munich was built for the seventy two games. So almost fifty years later. Um, it's still, the Olympics is still impacting millions of people um, in these places. Even Athens, which is kind of like held up as the, the worst of the recent mm. Olympic legacies, mm. they still also got a, a subway line and, and another kind of infrastructure improvement. So it's something yeah. that it's, it's, it's complex. There are so many subjects that you could take on. And this sounds like one that is really ripe for a documentary film, just throwing that out there. But how, how in general do you, do you decide? Because I feel like, you know, you've, you've tackled some kind of uh, heady, naughty issues that aren't really necessarily, you know, easily kind of uh, sure. capturable. I, mean, I, I think the, the, the thing that attracted me to the Olympic City project the most was that it wasn't a film. Um, it was just still photographs. It's a very... Um, stripped down I can just go to a city by myself for a couple of weeks and take pictures and walk around mm. uh, that's a, a big difference even on the sort of independent documentary level I still have a cinematographer I have sound people I have producers we've got all this stuff we got to you know edit the interviews and put music to them and you know figure out the next shoot um, it, it, it's a little more pure and it just lets me take photographs and just you know um get better at that i get that better at visually documenting something i think it's it's you know still photography or video or an interactive project or vr or whatever they're all kind of um tools in the kind of toolkit if you're trying to document the world around you and i'm, I'm just really curious about things and i and i, I like to explore them visually so it, I, I might feel like a subject is worth uh, me spending three years and, and making a feature film and, and maybe that form fits the subject matter best. But it might be just, hey, I want to take photographs of this for a couple of days and I'll, I'll just put them online or make a little book or something or everything in between, like a, a VR short or a short documentary. Um, it's, it's, all, it's all just ways that, that I can explore things that I want to explore. Mm, yeah, and to speak to Assad's point, you have done uh, films about these things that are, are hard to condense and capture in 
a single breath, if you will. (laughs) Um, So I'm really, I'm curious when you were, for instance, when you were working on Helvetica, like how do you create a narrative arc out of what is essentially a font? (laughs) I have no idea. Um, (laughs) That film specifically, it was my first film. I really didn't know what I was doing, Uh, but I had an idea of, of, what I wanted the film to to be like, or I had a uh, almost like a blueprint of it in my head about, oh, we were going to go to different cities, we'd see Helvetica around in the city, and then we talked to somebody who lived there that happened to be a designer, and we'd learn kind of a piece of, of the story or of kind of what they do or what their take on um, graphic design and typography was. So it's a pretty open framework. You can do a lot, I think, within within that that structure. Um, I think the reason that, that Helvetica kind of became sort of a cult film and obviously for graphic designers and, and, and type designers, no one had ever made a documentary about, about what they did. So I think they were definitely excited. <laughs> yeah, they were all thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, that was really, really when fonts became more of a kind of mass culture thing. I mean, you know, my mom knew what a font was suddenly. And 10 years before that in the 90s, people didn't. You just, it was the only thing if you were in the trade or you were in design. So um, it, it was just that moment when people were becoming interested in, in fonts and using them all the time online. Uh, I think that there is also kind of a visual game that's happening in, within the film of this uh, trying to spot the Helvetica when we show different kind of street scenes where there's type. Um, it's kind of like this Where's Waldo thing mm-hmm. that that actually becomes really uh, sort of powerful subliminally, which I didn't take into account when I was making the film, but only afterwards when I started watching it, if you watch it for 80 minutes and you're like, oh, look, find the, find the Helvetica, it changes the way you, you see the world. When you walk outside the theater, you're still doing that. Your brain gets into this groove of trying to spot the time. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I, I thought was just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to show how ubiquitous Helvetica is. That's all I was trying to do. But in fact, it, it made it this little brain game that um, that I think we're sort of programmed to kind of latch onto and try to solve that puzzle. Oh, where is it? Oh, there's there's the word. What does it say? And then the next time, oh, where is it this time? Oh, there it is, you know, spotting it. Um, somehow that repeating that for 80 minutes um, – just messes with your head. <laughs> it definitely does. I remember walking out and being like, oh, look at the MetLife building. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because yeah. graphic designers, I think, do have this, it's like called typomania. They have it all the time. They can't. So there's an official word for that? <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. It's, it's, the, it's the trying to identify the, the font before you even read what it is. Mm. It's just kind of a subconscious thing. You look at it and you're like, oh, Times New Roman or whatever. Right. Mm. I, I definitely got to a point where I was like trying to figure out if it was Ariel or Helvetica. Yeah, yeah, that's like, really hard. Which I, is, I, it's, it's funny. It's difficult. Even I when didn't we get were, good at it. Even when we <laughs> were making the film, I mean, when I was just kind of starting to, um, you know, become better at, at it, uh, there were some things that I filmed that I thought were Helvetica, but that were actually Ariel. They got mm. the big cut. I, well, actually, it's funny because we had it. We had a um, we had a screening with uh, Jonathan Heffler mm-hmm. and Tobias Frere Jones, who at that point were still you know working together, but. Um, and I just showed them a rough cut of the film, and they were like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's no, 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 avant-garde. I'm like, oh, really? Oh, it's such a great shot. And they're like, no, no, sorry. Yeah, for listeners who don't know, they are two very prominent kind of typeface designers. Yeah, two of the 
the best, you know, in the world. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so I, I, even I, when I was making it, I still had to have somebody kind of, you know, go through and tell me which, which was which. But it's, again, trying to capture this sort of big subject matter. I mean, that, that seems like a very small thing to look at, one typeface. And I think a lot of times people responding to the idea of the film, they're like, well, I can't believe they made a, a documentary about one font. I mean, come on, like, you know. Um, but there's so much behind it. There's such a bigger story behind it, the people involved and, you know, the graphic design and, and just the different movements within it. So it becomes something bigger, even though it's just a seemingly small thing. There's always a story behind behind every small thing in this world. Mm -hmm. So that's really all I um, was doing with that. Sometimes the the... the the brief, um, you know, when I'm thinking of making these films is just impossible. Like you can't make a, a film about uh, urban design and, and how cities are, 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 are made and shaped. It's, it's just it's impossible to do. It's unscalable. Well, it's unscalable, but it's also just a, a snapshot of a river. I mean, it's, it's changing <laughs> right. every second. I mean, stuff that I've shot at the beginning of the three-year process of making Urbanized, by the end, it was completely obsolete or it changed or something. So, it, it, you know, cities are constantly changing. Uh, so, sometimes they're, they're, you know, I always try to make a simple film. That's my, my goal is always like as to try to be, as, you know, this simplicity. Um, but somehow I get drawn into these just ridiculously complex subjects that um, that I, I know going in I'm going to fail, but it's just like trying to not fail as much as possible, basically. <laughs> to fail better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> to fail better. That's I mean that's the case. So I, I, you know I, I would rather reach for something and fail than just do something that was safe and you know and that I knew I was going to succeed at. Let's talk about our kitchens. <laughs> Jeremiah is looking around like, do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a kitchen. And can, what do you, do you not cook? Do you don't use it? I don't, I don't cook ever. Um, See, you thought you didn't have anything in common with Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City, but you do because I, she didn't use her kitchen either. You wow. also have a closet full of shoes. I actually thought that I had tons <laughs> of in common with Carrie Bradshaw. We both uh, write in our laptops in front of our window mm. from our uh, West Village townhouses. Uh, and we both <laughs> yes. have exactly three friends. <laughs> Good job. I mean, she uses her, her oven on the show for, uh, I think, sweater storage, storage yeah. which I always found hilarious. And there's also no windows in our kitchen, which I find depressing. But I think that is the case for most of us because there are no windows windows in my kitchen area. There is a window in my kitchen and it looks over a garbage alleyway where cats have sex. <laughs> oh, cute. That's, that's so such appetizing. A, that's no also wonder like you don't use such a New York thing to just like casually have feline sex be like in view of your, <laughs> of your oven. Um, well, what we did actually want to talk about was kitchen appliances more specifically. We can save cat sex for another episode. Um, there is a bit of controversy about like single use appliances. And we did a piece on curve.com, I think last fall about, you know, single use appliances and like, what are they, what are they good for? And I, as someone who has tons of single use appliances in my kitchen, I think they're good for quite a bit. So like, what are you working with? Okay, Asad? So <laughs> thank you for asking. I'm working with a waffle maker. I'm working Whoa. with an ice cream maker. Mm. We have a scale. But I will go to bat for the ice cream maker and the waffle maker because there are not other things that you could use 
in their stead to make the thing you want to make. I think a lot of people take issue with toasters because, oh, yeah, you could technically make toast in the oven, like with the broiler setting, or you could make toast like in a toaster oven, which is much more versatile than like a traditional toaster where you like drop the slice of bread Mm -hmm. in the, you know, Mm -hmm. but an ice cream maker, like what are you going to do? to make ice cream in a like you can't do it in a different appliance you you can put it in a plastic bag and then put another plastic bag around it with salt and shake it up a bunch we did yeah, that we did watching that in those summer videos. camp yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah but, watching those like remember how much your arms hurt after that as a kid true yeah mm-hmm. the, it's probably yeah it's like, like churning butter the texture is probably not the same yeah i don't think it was good ice cream but it was fine all right i've taken up a lot of space i'm very curious so do you have yes. appliances that well, you use well i was going to go to bat for my KitchenAid mixer, but I mean, I guess there's more than one use to it. It's technically not a one use thing, but it, you know, it's it one of those things that sits <laughs> on the counter and it takes up a lot of space. I mean, I guess when it comes down to it, like I have multi use things because I do toast my bread in a toaster oven. Like I'm not mm. about that toaster life. <laughs> you heard it here first. Zoe's not about that toaster life. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's not an appliance, but I make drip coffee and you can only make it like in a very particular way on the stove and the pot with the cone and the thing. And I even wash my filters. So I guess like it's not an appliance, but like that's my thing that I'll stick up for. That's fair. I also hate coffee pots like the electronic ones. That's so that's so real. Something that really struck a chord with me, and you noted this just now, you know, just just the many, many people that are involved in thinking about something that we all can take for granted, like a typeface, like Helvetica. Um, so let's let's talk about Dieter Rams, because I know that that is your next subject. Um, and I don't know that a lot of folks kind of know who he is and and where he worked and yeah, why sure. he's such a legend in the in the design community. Sure. Well, he was um, in my film Objectified, which was about product design and industrial design, manufactured objects. So he was the design director at uh, Braun, the German electronics and you know housewares company, uh, from the kind of 1950s into almost the 1990s. And he's probably the most influential living designer. Um, people like Jonathan Ive uh, and, and Apple and and many others are you know um, just you know talk about their their influence you know how he's influenced them and how his work has influenced them. It's the stuff that he was building. I mean, it was definitely definitely kind of influenced by um, the Bauhaus and then the Ulm School, which is the kind of art and design school that that Rams went to. Um, you know, about this as little design as possible, very minimal. Let the the form echo the function. Um, you can look at the stuff that he was designing in the 1950s and 60s, and it, it still looks like the future. I mean, it's this, you know, serene, white, very kind of spare, um, beautiful design. So he also just designed everything from, you know, the Oral-B toothbrush to stereo systems to furniture to electric razors to, you know, film projectors. I mean, the range that he got to oversee at Braun and also at Vitso, which is the furniture company that he designed for, which I think the Braun stuff kind of, you know, overshadows the Vitsu work a lot because, um, I don't know, some of those things were in production for a longer time and, and uh, have been held up as iconic. But the output he did he did for Vitsu is just also staggering. Um, but to look at really anything that is inside your home uh, and, and or office and that he's designed something, um, you know, he's designed every one of those kind of objects 
uh, and if you look at them, you see his aesthetic through. It's there's a consistent expression of his design philosophy through everything he does, and it's totally evident when you see it. Well, you worked really, really closely with him to to create this documentary. Um, I think you had access to him in a way that is not uh, that not a lot of people did. Yeah, I mean, he 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 is so influential and so well known within the design world that. I had kind of assumed that after uh, Objectified and then he, there was a big retrospective at the Victoria and Albert Museum and at SF MoMA of his his work and uh, Fiden put out a just definitive book. And I, I just kind of assumed that somebody was doing a documentary, kind of a comprehensive film about him. And uh, I was speaking with Mark Adams at, at Vitsu, uh, who, who, you know, still works with Rams, you know, on a daily basis. And he said, no, no one is doing it. Dieter just doesn't want, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't care about it. He doesn't want to deal with the media. He feels like everything's already been said in the books that have been, you know, and I sort of, my argument was, look, this is, film is a different medium. We can do different things. It's also going to reach a different audience uh, than who would buy a hundred dollar, you know, design book. So, um in this idea of sort of passing his philosophy on to the next generation, the, 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 I think one of the most interesting things about Rams is, yeah, he's had this illustrious career. He's designed hundreds of objects. But if you ask him if he, you know, wanted to, if he would had this to do over, if he would still want to be a designer, he he says no. Really, like he feels like he's contributed to this mass consumer, you know, um, just. Uh, just a society that just like too much junk, you know, unnecessary products are everywhere. Um, and he feels like he's had a, a role in, in that somehow, even though the things he's designed, I think he's, um, you know, tried to make them as long lasting and as uh, uh, sort of environmentally sensitive as possible. He still feels like he's contributed to this thing. He, he, he would want to be a uh, urban planner, actually, is that what he mm. wanted to be if he could do it over again? Because he trained originally as an architect. And got hired at Braun as an architect, but then just sort of got thrown into helping some product design ideas and just, you know, took off that way. So that contradiction, I think, is interesting. He's also been talking about sustainability and, and environmental consciousness since the 70s. So, you know, it's, it's something that, that I don't think most people who, even the people who know about his work, uh, maybe don't know that, uh, uh, those facets of his, uh, of his, his life. Mm. I find that really uh, just fascinating that he kind of takes that stance now. I mean, he's had this, yeah, he's had this long, illustrious career and done such great work and is now kind of like, you know, well, looking back at it uh, here's mournfully. The, here's the thing like that. <laughs> I mean, some of the, um, you know, with modern technology, yeah, you, you know, you can't design a phone now that in 20 years is going to be functional, probably. Mm. Um, but so many of Ram's things he designed in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they're still working. They're still working really well. Mm-hmm. And there's still like a really healthy uh, appetite for them on eBay. <laughs> yeah, definitely. As someone who has tried to buy a, a Ram's uh, record well, player. It's like one of those things like a clock radio or an alarm clock from the 60s. Uh, you know, the chances of it surviving, even the stuff that was mass produced and surviving and still working now are still pretty slim. So yeah, there is a total collector culture mm-hmm. of his stuff. But it's it's funny because um, my mom um, is in the habit of sending me 
packages randomly. Like I won't know what's in them. I'll just get a box from my mom. Oh, and that's, like, that's what sweet. is that's this? Awesome. Well, it's always well, it's always kind of like junk that she's trying to clear out of the of the, of the garage. That she, um, yeah. Oh, I thought you'd like this, or whatever. Or this is your thing from you know when you were twelve. So, um, but during the uh, just uh, like last month, I got a box and it was the uh, brawn. Uh, orange juicer, the you know kind of electric juicer that we had when I was in high school, and <laughs> that she you know so how a German designer of you know these objects uh, kind of affects the life of some teenager in California, me uh, is another thing that I think is kind of fascinating. And I had a bronze alarm clock. My dad had a bronze shaver. Uh, so I'm I'm interested in in our relationship to this all this stuff and and by extension, the people who design it. So how does this guy in Germany end up affecting what I, you know, how I grew up in California? Yeah, wow. Um, we know that you have used Kickstarter to great effect and kind of uh, raising funds for films. How has the internet and uh, just crowdfunding culture changed the way you conceive of your work and get it done? Well, I mean, interestingly enough, we were kind of crowdfunding before Kickstarter was was invented. Um, you know, my background is in independent music and like punk rock record labels and stuff. So the idea of uh, having a direct connection with the, pers- the, the the audience, with the people who want what you're what you're making, um, has has been part of what I do since the you know the late 1980s. So. You know, even when I was started producing films, which was in the um, early 2000s, like I started helping friends make music documentaries, just helping produce them or distribute them. But we were already kind of going after the fans. Like the first um, documentary that I produced was this, uh, about the band Wilco. It was called I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Mm-hmm. It was in 2002, probably. And of course, they have a ton of passionate fans. So we were like, hey, you know, pre-order the DVD six months in advance and we're going to give you this special poster or something. And then we use that money to f- actually finish the film. So right. it was crowdfunding before that term <laughs> existed. Yeah. Um, I mean, what Kickstarter does that that is, is so great is just sort of um, formalize that and, and make it easy and bring together just a... Um, uh, a, a group of people who are interested in, in getting involved in, I mean, in any project, any creative project. So, you know, that's the thing. It's not just the people who are interested in my films. It's people who just happen to be on Kickstarter and, oh, Dieter Rams, I think I've heard of him, and will go on and, and, and maybe get involved that way. So it's created its own sort of, you know, environment of, of um, you know, people who want to fund these projects. So so it's great. I've done five projects now on, mm-hmm. on, on Kickstarter. Wow. Um, but that was our MO before Kickstarter too. But I think they've just kind of codified it and make it, made it a little more simple. Mm, so I, uh, we just have one more question, one That's quick it? question. Jeez. Yeah, I know. We're fast. <laughs> uh, what is next up for you? <clears throat> um, what is next up? Uh, well, the Rams film. I need to finish that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did. I made a film that was a. Uh, uh, about the design of, of offices called Workplace that's yes. going to premiere next next month at the uh, Architecture and Design Film Festival. That that was fun. It was started out as kind of a um, a project, a commission from RGA, the agency who was building a new office and sort of invited me to kind of follow along their process, but then also kind of talk to other people who are, you know, thinking about this stuff. It's another one of those areas where we spend so much time in offices. We spend so much of our lives in these spaces, but 
people don't really put that much thought into um, how they're designed and how that affects our lives and also what we do on laptops and all this digital equipment has radically changed over the past 15 years, but the spaces we do it in are pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's about trying to bridge that um, digital and physical space and try to um, see how those can better interact. Um, so that, uh, yeah, that comes out next month. And then doing more Olympic City photographing, that's an ongoing project. I mean, I think that John and I will be like in wheelchairs, basically <laughs> wheeling around like in our 80s, you know, to could see what Sochi looks like in, in 30 years. Um, it's, it is it is a very like slow project. It's it, The project itself is about time so uh, and how it affects these cities and these places. So that's something that will continue. We just got back from, um, from Turin where we documented the, oh, wow. the Olympics there, which is this is fascinating. The the Olympic Village there, which had been vacant for just for eight years after the 2006 Games, got kind of taken over by African refugees. They started squatting in it, and now there's 1,200 African refugees squatting in the Olympic Village in Turin. The wow. Italian government is sort of tolerating it. They don't know what to do, but they're not helping the situation. Mm -hmm. There's activists in, in Turin who are... Um, helping maintain the buildings and, and they've set up a school and a barber shop and a mosque and all kinds of things in this, you know, the former, um, uh, you know, residences for the athletes. So that one was fascinating. Um, so we'll continue to do that and maybe, maybe put out another book. We're trying to plan an exhibit in Amsterdam for next year. Um, uh, guitars. Yeah. I'm sort of obsessed with guitars. I've been since I was a kid and, and, um, I have a friend who for 30 years has been building electric guitars. He's, you know, somebody whose band I worked with when we were in college and now he's turned into one of the finest luthiers on the planet. So I help him, Saul, his name is Saul Cole. Uh, so I help his uh, business out um, too and get to play a lot of guitars, which is a great, great It's a win-win. <laughs> it is a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> and they're a, I mean, they're a really interesting design object. I mean, they are a design but they're also kind of this tool that, you know, our, an artist then takes and makes this incredible music. And there is an interesting kind of um, uh, conversation happening between the player and the builder when they're kind of conceiving the instrument. Um, so I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated with the stories behind instruments too, you know, just the famous guitars like Willie Nelson's mm -hmm. Trigger and things like that. I'm, I'm super fascinated. I always think about making a, a film about that. Yeah, I was going to say, sounds like fodder. <laughs> yeah, you may have yeah. heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm definitely, the, the other thing that, I, that I've started working on, which I, I'm, I'm also uh, fascinated by logos and, and the design of, of identities. So I think that's the, the, the next film that I'm kind of working on in this sort of, again, it's like I try to get out of the design world. <laughs> and it just grabs you back. It does. There, there are too many, many um, parts of it that I'm, I still want to explore. And, and I'm fascinated by the people, the history of kind of logo design, but also the people that are doing it now. And also this kind of the other side of it, the sort of commercialization and kind of the, the you know, logification of of our of our world mm -hmm. um in our daily lives and how that's changed over the past you know couple decades so I, I like looking at that um you know dichotomy so that that'll be another thing um that i'm going to do next year and uh other things 
too. I'm sure. <laughs> Got a lot going on. A lot yeah. indeed. Oh, v- uh, virtual reality. Sorry, I have another I have a <laughs> VR startup. <laughs> We're doing v- like um, you know uh, VR documentaries with um, a bunch of different people and partners. So that's just another. It's another way to kind of you know tell an, a, a nonfiction story, um, and it has its own set of challenges and its own set of things that it can do that that traditional documentary can't. So I've, I've, the past year, I've been shooting a lot of VR. I've got a bunch of stuff coming out um, this fall. Uh, um, just in some of it is architecture and design related, but some of it is just kind of like interesting so- stories where being able to see everything mm-hmm. and feel like you've got presence uh, makes a big difference. Um, you know, there are, there are things that, uh, again, that, that VR can do that traditional documentary can. It can give you that sense of place. Like we spend so much time as uh, filmmakers trying to shoot a lot of a, you know, a specific building or, or area, trying to kind of get the viewer to feel like they're there. And with, um, you know, 360 video and just VR, you th- that's a lot simpler you can just put the person there and they right. can look around and kind of but then it's about okay well how do you now tell a story when uh, or or hold someone's attention when they can look everywhere like there is no in front of the camera or behind the camera yeah so it's 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 super interesting so yeah, we're doing a, a lot of stuff like that too so we will stay tuned okay yeah, that's <laughs> thanks so exciting. much no i always love to uh to talk about these things because they're there i'm obsessed with them so as are we awesome thank you so much for joining us yeah thank you so much for coming (laughs) oh my pleasure thanks so much for having me that was the second episode of the appeal if you like what you just heard subscribe and rate the show on itunes find us in the podcast section of the spotify app and check us out at curb.com and you can check out gary huswit's work at huswit.com or twitter at gary underscore huswit 